0: I had a pastor once who was really great at affirmation sandwiches. Um, and so he would, he would affirm you and encourage you, and then he would somehow slip a little bit of correction in the middle of that, and then he would affirm and encourage you again. And somehow you would get the message that, like, there was something that you needed to change, but you felt more encouraged afterwards than you did before and I just never knew how he did that <laughs> um, but it's called an affirmation sandwich and what we're gonna look at in Revelation today is kind of like an affirmation sandwich from Jesus um, he starts out with the church at Pergamum and he's speaking to them and he has something to say to them that's really important and they need to make a change But he starts by encouraging them for their faithfulness, for their perseverance in the midst of trial. And then he begins to talk about what they need to correct because they've been believing some lies. And then at the end, he encourages them because if they'll turn and they'll repent of these lies they've been believing, then in him they can find true life, eternal life. And so today we're going to look at the letter to the church at Pergamum, continue our study in Revelation. Um, we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And what we're going to see is that there's rewards that Jesus offers for repentance. Um, that the reward for those who walk in repentance is eternal life. And that's what Jesus has to offer us. Start in verse 12 in chapter 2. And to the angel of, church, of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and, and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Father, we ask for your help today as we study your word together. And uh, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would give us understanding. Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what you would have to say to us. And God, we pray that we would respond to your call to repentance. Lord, that we would be encouraged uh, by what you have for us, and that you might bring about a change in us uh, that enables us to receive all that you would give to us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all these things and ask for your blessing on this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we have to look at here is a question of authority. And so if you'll look with me at the first couple verses here. Um, Jesus says, uh, A write to the angel of the church in Pergamum, and, and write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And so Jesus starts his letter to this church by demonstrating to them why they should listen. He, he tells them who he is and, and why they should listen, because he has the authority. And so if, you, if you've seen the Avengers movies, so my wife gets super irritated with me because I, I love superhero movies. And she can't stand him. Um, so I watch The Avengers all the time. It's one of my favorites. Um, and, you know, judge, if you will. But, um, <laughs> but I enjoy it. And there's this character in, one, in the most recent Avengers movie named Vision. And, and many of you, if you haven't heard of Vision, you know of Thor and his hammer. And how Thor is the only one who can wield the hammer. He picks up the hammer and, and nobody else can pick it up. Like, everybody tries, Iron Man tries, and he uses his rocket boosters to try and lift the thing off the ground, nothing. Um, Captain America, who's, like, jacked, can't budge the thing. I mean, he moves it a little bit because he's got a little more honor than the other guys do, but he still can't lift the thing. And then Vision comes, and he picks the hammer straight up. And before he had done that, all the other Avengers had been debating about whether they could trust him and then Vision picks up Thor's hammer, and they know they can. not Because only a man with honor and with the character that was required could pick up Thor's hammer. And it's the same sort of story that we are reminded of with uh, King Arthur and the sword and the stone, right? Um, Only the rightful king, the rightful heir, could come to this stone that had a sword in it, where all these men had been trying to pick this sword up out of this stone. And only the true king, the heir, could remove the sword and wield it. And it's the same thing with Jesus, because what we're seeing here in Revelation 2 with what Jesus is saying is that he is the one who's able to hold the sword, He's the one who has the words of the living God. And so the reason you should listen to him is because he's God himself and he's speaking to you. And so when Jesus speaks, we had better listen because he's the only one who can actually wield it. And so the question of authority is answered for us right from the get-go. And then it says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And, like, if you happen to be in that city, like, that's just so unfortunate, you know? Like, you happen to live in the city where, where Satan, like, you know, set up shop. And you're like, man, you know, how did I pick this instead of the one down the road? Like, I was so close. Um, but, but Jesus tells these people, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And, like, at that point, you're like, man, I just, I think that... At some point in my life, I made a wrong decision somewhere, and like, maybe we need to consider a move, but, but Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and, and what he's getting at is that there's heavy present darkness and evil in Pergamon. and he says, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And so, like, this church has seen it. They have seen hardship, they have seen trial, they have been tested in ways that many of us have never been tested, have never had our faith tested to that degree. Um, and, and they are literally in a city where people would want to harm them or kill them because of their faith in Christ and because of their unwillingness to submit to um, the worship of the emperor or the worship of Zeus, or of the healing god of Asclepius. And and so Jesus says, I I know where you dwell. You dwell in that city where Satan's throne is, in this intense darkness, and yet you remain faithful. And he encourages them with that. And so it makes me think of uh, a time when my wife and I were in St. Louis, and I've probably told this story before, but we did an outreach there in South City, St. Louis. The church that we were coming from was out in the county, and then we went and we did some outreaches and some block parties and stuff, um, held some VBS-type events for kids and things in the community in the middle of the city. And so we would go down there uh, quite often. We'd meet the people, pray for them, and we'd invite them to different block parties and things. And, um, And each time we met, to go down there we would meet at the church and we would pray because we knew that what we were entering into was different than the place where we were currently living the level of darkness and evil that was present in the community in which we were going um, was heavy it was heavier than what we were used to and so we would gather together and we would pray for each other and we would pray for those we were going to live on and, and try to help and, and the reason that it was so dark and so evil in that area we were in um, largely has to do with what the church at Pergamum is going to be rebuked for here in a second. Um, there was a lot of sexual immorality. Um, there was uh, a ton of things going on. I couldn't even begin to explain to you. Um, we would, in the middle of the day, we would be having fun with some kids from the community, in the community garden, playing games with them and stuff. And we would see a drug deal go down across the street. And then we would see a prostitute hurry into uh, the brothel. And, and you're sitting there with kids. And these are the things they're growing up around. And, and in that moment, you're, if you've not grown up in a community like that, you're just like, I don't know what's happening. And and the the level and the weight of the darkness in that community could be felt just going there. I don't know how else to describe it to you, but when you walked into this area, you knew that evil was present. And that's what Jesus is saying about the church at Pergamum is that they're in a city and an area where Satan has such influence and evil is so prevalent and immorality is so rampant that you know the second you enter in, you see the, the worship of the false gods. You know the sexual immorality that's taking place. And, and you know that Satan is having his way in this community. And so Jesus says, I know where you've been. And he encourages them because they persevere even when they saw one of their friends die. And so his commendation to them is that they persevere in the midst of their difficulty. And just to give you a little bit of context as to what Satan's throne is, um, because you read that and you're like, what does that even mean? Um, Pergamum was the center of emperor worship. And so they were one of the first cities to construct a, uh, a temple and a place where people could come and worship the Roman emperor. And, and so that's one reason that scholars think that Jesus says this to this church in Pergamum. And then a couple of other reasons are that um, the god of healing, um, whose symbol was a serpent, um, that was the main hub for that worship of that god. And then also, uh, there was a huge altar to Zeus there. And a lot of the inscriptions on this altar, on the statues that had to do with Zeus, had serpents on them. And it's just kind of ironic because you see people going to these places and worshiping these gods. And, and as a Christian, you probably would have just seen the imagery and, and known and wondered, how can you not see what's happening? And so Jesus encourages them because they're living in the midst of this kind of a climate. And, and, and it's not just that they're living in this, it's that they're actually expected to participate. And so um, some people would fear for their livelihoods um, if they, because they couldn't participate as a Christian in the worship of these false gods. And some... Um, went ahead and did it anyway, and that's what Jesus is gonna rebuke them for. Um, There were these trade guilds where um, basically uh, all these guys who practice a particular trade would come around um, this and worship this false god, and if you didn't do that, then you kind of missed out on the networking opportunities. Um, You missed out on the opportunities to build a livelihood for yourself and your family, and it was a very, very serious thing. And, and so they are just in the midst of it, in the thick of it, and they have this intense pressure from their culture to, to participate. And then one of them actually is killed um, for being a witness to Jesus. And, and we may not live in a country where these sorts of things happen to Christians, But they are happening. There are believers in other places in the world who have their lives threatened daily, who actually face death for their faith. There are believers who, while ISIS is going down the line and chopping off their heads, are praying for their persecutors and are singing songs of praise to God as they meet their death. And in our our context, it's hard to even imagine that. It's hard to imagine that as you're discipling your child, as you're teaching them about the faith, as you're teaching them about God and all that Jesus has done, it's hard to imagine for us that in other places in the world, as parents are doing that with their kids, they're knowing that their child could be killed for that. And it makes you reevaluate things, doesn't it? if you actually think about it for a minute, because we look at our level of commitment to Christ and then the level of commitment that believers are forced to make elsewhere, and we wonder, would I do the same thing? Would I be that faithful to Christ in the midst of that kind of persecution and that kind of suffering? And, and, and I don't know. Like, God help me. God help me to be that faithful if I'm faced with those sorts of decisions. And so one of the reasons that we pray for the nations on Wednesday nights is because believers all around the world are experiencing really difficult things, and sometimes we're not aware of it, and we just take one little bit of our week to be reminded of what our brothers and sisters, they're our family are experiencing elsewhere, and we pray for them. And we pray that Jesus would encourage them in the same way that he does these believers here. But we don't live in a culture like that. We don't live in a culture where we are pressured into worshiping at temples of false gods. Um, But we do live in a culture that forces us, or attempts to force us to believe certain ways, don't we? We live in a culture that um, is just as immoral, um, that has just as many things going on that destroy families and relationships, um, and, and the culture says to us, if, if you don't believe this about sexuality, then you're intolerant and we don't want anything to do with you. And if how, how could you actually believe that there's only one God and that all the people who don't worship that God that you worship are going to burn in hell forever? Like, how could you believe that? That's the type of attitude and pressure we have as Christians in our culture, is we're pressured to go ahead and, and ascribe to what everyone else is ascribing to in different ways than those who were at Pergamum. But with the same goal in mind. The same goal of getting us to abandon the true lover of our souls for false gods and false promises. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying the church in Pergamum is in danger of here. He says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so Jesus says, you've got to stop believing the lies. Like you've, you've been faithful in this area as, as a whole, like you're walking through the midst of difficulty and you're remaining faithful to me, but then in this area over here, you're just kind of capitulating to those around you. And, and you're giving in to the pressures of the culture around you, and it's got to stop because you're believing the same lies that have been believed since Genesis 3. So look with me at Genesis 3 for just a moment. Because this is where it all begins. The believers in Pergamum are dwelling in a city where Jesus says Satan's throne is. And this is where we see Satan into the enter into the picture and sin happen for the first time. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. That's where things all fell apart. That's where all this mess that we see around us and all the difficult things in our lives that we experience, that's where it all began, it was in a garden where a serpent told a lie, and it was believed. And there's kind of four things that Satan um, pitches to, to Eve and to Adam here. He says, God didn't actually say that. He says, there won't be consequences for disobedience. He says, God is keeping something good from you. And it's better to do things your way than God's way. And it's the same lies over and over and over again, and we keep believing them. We keep believing the same lies again and again that God didn't actually say that it's best for sex to happen in the context of a covenant marriage with one man and one woman united in covenant under him. We Actually, uh, believe, we start to believe that there won't be consequences for doing things our own way. That there are no actual consequences for having sex outside of marriage. That there are no actual consequences for um, doing things the way that we want to do them. And, and, and we, the, the awful thing is that we actually believe that God is keeping something from us. Just like Eve did, we believe that there's something to be desired that is outside of his will for us, that there's something good that God is withholding from us. And so we do things our own way because we don't believe that God has what's best in mind for us. Just like a child, as a parent tells them, don't go towards the street. The child, for some reason, doubts what the parent has said doesn't believe that there's going to be consequences if they go towards the street, and then actually believes that the street has something to offer them that their parent doesn't, and that their parent is keeping them from something good. And the sad reality is we continue to believe the lies, and we continue to do things our own way, and, and we do reap the consequences, there's babies that are born out of wedlock, and, um, and I was one of those, and I grew up in the midst of a difficult home situation, and there's plenty of people who have, plenty of you probably have as well, and, and the, worse than that, um, there's babies who are done away with because they're seen as an inconvenience, as the, and they were just the result of one night of fun. And, and so there are consequences. Like, and, and, and we do reap them, if not now, later, when we stand before Jesus and he says, why did you believe that I was withholding something from you? Like, I told you again and again that I wanted what was best for you, that I wanted what was good for you, that I actually have it to offer you. And yet you believe the same lie again and again throughout your life and continued to seek out things your own way and now you're going to inherit the fruits of it. And so Jesus warns them to stop believing the same lies that humanity has been believing for thousands of years. Because they've got some who are teaching them that it's okay to worship other gods, that there's no penalty for that, that, that Jesus doesn't actually care if you're uh, uniting yourself with a false god that has nothing to actually promise you. And so they would um, eat food that was sacrificed to idols, They would eat food that, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, was offered up to demons because the false gods are not actually gods. They can't actually provide anything that they promise. They're actually demons who are telling the same lies that Satan has been telling since the garden, and we are ignorant enough and naive enough to believe it. And he says, stop, stop. Because here's the thing, God is like a husband who loves his bride more than you could imagine. Who, I, I just did my first wedding this last weekend. That's why we weren't able to be here with you all um, last weekend. I did my cousin's wedding, and and before the ceremony, I told him, like, listen, man, Every time I get to the end of my notes here, I start losing it, so you've got to not cry during this thing, because I'm going to lose it, and we're not going to get through it, and you're not going to be married. Um, But but as soon as the ceremony starts, he starts crying a little bit, and I made the mistake of looking at him, and then, like, I'm trying not to cry the whole time as I'm trying to do my sermon and stuff, And, and as his bride starts to walk down the aisle, he completely loses it. Like, he's sobbing like a baby. And it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And that kind of a love that I saw in that moment, that kind of a joy when he saw his bride coming down the aisle for the first time, that's the kind of joy and delight in us that God has. God is a husband who cares for his bride in ways that no one else can. Who loves her and adores her and wants the very best for her and will settle for nothing less and he looks at us with that kind of a love and then we go to lovers who abandon us and we go to false gods who can't keep their promises because they're not real and They're demons that have been telling lies for thousands of years and promising more pleasure and more joy. And it's all false. We we go to a computer screen instead of our spouse for satisfaction. And we We believe that if we do what we want to do with our money rather than what God wants us to do with it, then we're actually going to have more of it and more pleasure and more joy if we do what we want to do rather than what He wants us to do. And at the end of the day, we're left with things and not God. And what's offered to you is God Himself. Like, that's the offer, is the things of the world that don't satisfy or Jesus himself, God who came down from heaven to be with you, to reconcile you to himself. That's the offer is that God doesn't just want to offer you things that bring joy. He wants to give you the source of joy, which is himself. And that's, that's what Jesus is pleading with the Christians in Pergamum right here. He's saying, you've got to stop doing this because it doesn't provide satisfaction. It doesn't provide joy. It doesn't do anything for you. And I've got it all to offer you. It's all here. And if you'll turn and come to me, I'll give it to you. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus doesn't play games with his bride. Like, he's not okay with people corrupting his bride and her purity and harming her. And so he says, these people who are teaching these lies and getting people to follow them, if you don't deal with them, then I will. He's not messing around. Like, he, he sees that bride coming down the aisle, and in that moment, he knows that there is nobody who's ever going to harm her, and if they do, then he's going to have something to say about it. And so Jesus says, I will come with the sword of my mouth, the word of God, which is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce to the division Uh, of the heart and and its motives and able to discern them. And and this God who knows all and is able um, will do away with those that are harming his bride if the problem isn't taken care of. And so Jesus isn't messing around. He cares for his bride and he will War against them with the sword of his mouth. He will bring judgment. He will bring consequences for sin. Sin is not without consequence. If you don't reap the consequences now, then you will later. And don't believe the lie that says that there aren't. Because it's the same lie that Satan's been telling for thousands of years. And Jesus promised you is that it's not true. And that at the end of the day, he's going to take care of it all. And you'll either be with him or separated from him. And so he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so he says, if you're willing to listen, hear my words hear what I'm about to say. And he says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And so the hidden manna makes you think back to what God did with his people in the desert and the wilderness in the Old Testament. They were wandering through the wilderness, and God provided manna from heaven for them. He provided what they needed for sustenance. They had longings and hunger, and they would die without him. And he literally dropped bread from heaven so that they could live. And then Jesus, in John chapter 6, John 6, 32 through 33, here's what he says. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The the bread that's offered to us is God himself. It's Jesus who didn't stay distant, didn't look at all the problems that were happening with our lives and just kind of let the clock turn and let the world spin. He actually came down from heaven and entered into the mess and the muck and the mire with us and was a victim of the sin that we brought into the world. And he took our place and took our punishment so that what would be offered to us is the bread of life is the life that is only found in Jesus. And so Jesus says, that's what's promised to you. That's the bread of life, the hidden manna. And at the end of the day, um, we who trust in Christ are invited to a banquet that belongs to the Messiah. We are invited to sit with him at his table and enjoy satisfaction, and pleasure in their true forms, as we dine with God himself, with Jesus, who actually provides what we need. And he says, I will give him a white stone. And the white stone, uh, scholars think, could refer to a number of different things. Uh, One of them is uh, that whenever a judge would give out a verdict... Um, they would give a black stone to say guilty, and they would give a white stone to say acquitted. And and the white stone also symbolizes purity. And, and so Jesus promises and gives to those who turn from themselves and their sin a white stone that is a promise of forgiveness and that all the shame that you felt in your life doesn't have to be yours anymore, that it can be taken away. That the weight that you felt for the wrongs you've committed against God or your family or your friends, the people around you, that you don't have to bear that burden anymore. That you don't have to receive a black stone that says you're guilty, but that Jesus offers you forgiveness and acquittal, a clean slate, And not just a clean slate, but a new name. So when you hear somebody's name, you associate things with that name. Um, So when I hear Luke's name or Cameron's name, I think of some of my dearest friends and the good times we've had together. And then maybe you hear a name from somebody in your past that has hurt you and it makes you think of the wrongs that were committed against you. It makes you think of awful things that you don't want to think about anymore. Whenever we hear a name, we remember the things that are associated with it. And what Jesus is saying is that though there are hundreds of different things, thousands of things that could be associated with our name, because of the things that we've done against God and other people around us. He says, you don't have to be known by that anymore. I'll give you a new name. A name only known to the one who receives it. A name given to you from God. That, and, and, and the name is, belongs to Jesus. Jesus. It belongs to Jesus. And everything that is associated with his name is what God offers to you. And so God offers to you life this morning, eternal life for all those who would walk in repentance, who would turn from themselves and their ways and turn towards God and his way. Because what's offered to you is not you doing better What's offered to you is a gift of life. The bread from heaven that actually satisfies the longings that you have. The white stone that is a promise of your forgiveness and purity. And the new name that only has good things attached to it that you could never deserve or earn on your own. He offers eternal life to those who walk in repentance. That's the reward. Would you pray with me? God, we ask that you would help us to hear. Lord, would you open our ears and our eyes to see and hear your voice and to see what you would have for us. God, would you help us to turn from ourselves and our ways and to trust in you. The trust in your son. Jesus, we ask that you would have your way with us today. Lord, that you would enter into lives and hearts today. And God, that you would raise people from death to life. Jesus, we know that you are able and in you is true life and satisfaction. So, God, we plead with you for your help to awaken us to that. And we ask that you'd help us to trust you. In Jesus' name.